Well, this morning, we're entering perhaps one of the most well-known, the most memorable parts of the book of Exodus. And, I would say, of the entire Bible. The Ten Plagues of Egypt. Although, curiously, as as Old Testament scholar Christopher J.H. Wright points out, the Bible doesn't actually refer to these as plagues per se. Instead, these ten terrors unleashed on Egypt are more accurately described in the Hebrew language as blows. As in, the Lord is striking Egypt down with supernatural blows against their natural order. And horror of horrors, creation itself is coming undone at His judgment. Now, I have to confess, folks, as I was reading through this passage, time and again this week, I I couldn't help but read and see the news this week with these signs and wonders in mind. The images that are coming out of Eastern Europe now, a society quickly destabilizing overnight, bombs exploding in the streets, gunfire erupting in crowds, and perhaps worst of all, screaming children huddling together like frightened cattle, hiding for their lives in subway cars. All of this reminded me of the undoing of creation. The reversion of God's ordered world back into the primordial chaos before anything was. And as we as a society hear the stone-hearted words of a political despot, words that threaten so easily nuclear retaliation against any who dare defy his bloody campaign, I can't help but be reminded how Scripture tells us again and again the cold, hard truth about how our sin inevitably leads to death. It's bone-chilling, isn't it? To think of how this war of vanity in our modern age of nuclear power could lead to the destruction, the leveling of entire cities and ecosystems at the whim of pride and sin. This, however, is just humanity left to our own devices. This is who we are. Think of the staggering fear that ordinary Egyptians and even Israelites must have felt in these old days as they watched the world around them quite literally collapse and there was nothing that they could do about it. But their aggressor wasn't a mere military madman and mortal. It was God Almighty Himself. An unconquerable unsurvivable foe. What possible hope could any of them have in this escalating conflict? Which leads us to the question, what hope do we have as ordinary people living in such terribly extraordinary times? Folks, I don't know about you, but I'd be shaking in my boots on a permanent basis if I didn't believe that despite my own sin, and despite our corporate sin as a society, and even further as the human race, that God is for me and you and us because of Jesus Christ. We can take great comfort 
and the God who stands astride history, unsurprised as it unfolds. After all, as things seem all the more dire in our world, the Lord Jesus Christ Himself tells us, when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, don't be alarmed. These things must take place. But it is not yet the end. For nation will rise up against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and famines. And if I may be so bold as to add, plagues and pandemics yet. These are the beginning of the birth pains. See, even when God in His sovereignty allows creation to be enveloped in the chaos, often of our own sin, and because of our own stubbornness, His final goal is not our death, but our rebirth. Jesus goes on to conclude this, if the Lord had not cut short those days, no one would be saved. But, He cut short those days for the sake of the elect whom He chose. Folks, whether it's in ancient Israel or our contemporary church, our hope is not in any warring government or disintegrating creation. It's in the Lord of Israel who comes in Christ Jesus to break the power of canceled sin and set us prisoners free. He cuts the days of any Pharaoh or any president short so that all who are in Christ will be saved. This Gospel that God chose to become a man so that those chosen in that man might become eternally reunited to God is the hope that we ground ourselves in. It's the hope that we we survive on as we come to this frightening part of Scripture this morning and while we live through a frightening time in human history. See, we can be real as Christians. We don't have to put on a show. I know that's the evangelical specialty of, of, of putting on a facade of everything being alright. How are you, brother? Oh, I'm doing great. It's the biggest lie we tell every time we come through these doors. We can be real, folks about the blood, sweat, and tears of our sinful and suffering world. We can be real about that. Because our hope is in the good news of Christ that is all the more real. And so this morning, we can be honest about how our sin turns our hearts rocky. We can be honest and truthful about how these rocky hearts lead to rivers of blood. To bloodshed and death. But before we get into our passage, let's just reflect on where we've been. What the story has been so far. See, Moses and Aaron have met with Pharaoh, as you recall, but it went rather poorly. Much to their surprise. And even more so to their chagrin. Because they came in their own words, in their own name, in their own power, instead of in the Lord's, who commissioned them in the first place. And Pharaoh retaliated by showing that his name was greater than their earthly names. And boy, was he ever right. Because by the power of his name, 
He levied such cruelty on this already mistreated people. Their forced labor got worse. Their lives got more miserable. So much so that the Israelites who rejoiced and the herald of of Moses and Aaron saying, the Lord's coming to set you free, now hated them. You've caused us to stink before Pharaoh, Moses and Aaron. We were fools to ever trust you. And so Moses, totally baffled by what's happening here, says to God, why in the world didn't you help them? Immediately, reneges any responsibility on his part. Why didn't you help them, Lord? And despite it being Moses' fault and Moses' problem, the Lord answers with both authority and yet grace. Because God says, okay, Moses, you didn't get the job done, but now watch what I'm about to do. Even for and even through you. Which leads us to our passage today. Because they haven't been too good at listening or obeying thus far, the Lord repeats His words from when He first met with Moses in the wilderness all the way back in chapters 3 and 4. In verse 9 we read this, When Pharaoh tells you, perform a miracle, tell Aaron, take your staff and throw it down before Pharaoh and it will become a serpent. Now something unique happens in this verse. Because in this opening shot across the bow, when the Lord is trying to shake Pharaoh out of his apathy and get his attention, Pharaoh, for once, actually asks for a sign. It seems as if Pharaoh, in this momentary way, has a shred of of curiosity about this. Uh, uh, Perhaps a sliver of a chance that he might pay attention to what he's about to see. But this is the only time that Pharaoh ever asks for such a sign in the course of all these horrific blows against Egypt and their society. And it won't be until this final blow, the last plague, where God claims Pharaoh's firstborn son because Pharaoh has refused to let God's firstborn son, namely Israel, go. Only then will he begin to pay attention to the meaning of these horrible signs, and more importantly, to the God who is the author of them. But why is this? Now I think we, or at least I'll speak for myself here, we tend to read others' faithlessness in the Bible with an underestimation of our own faithlessness. In other words, it's so easy for us to laugh when we come to these parts of Scripture, we laugh at Pharaoh's or Moses or Israel's disbelief, and yet we can never quite seem to see our own. If we're honest with ourselves, folks, how many times has disaster interrupted our regular lives only for us to never stop and reflect on why this might all be happening? How many times do things have to go off the rails for us to consider Perhaps God is speaking. How many times do we have to see new diseases or societal unrest or natural disasters or economic panic or any number 
of other disasters in this world and never even think about falling to our knees with prayer or fasting. How many times do we have to let these blows come against us? So it's so very easy for us, and maybe again, I'll just speak for myself here. It's so very easy to look around at the misery of this world or perhaps of specific individuals with laser-focused precision. See, we can always see and we're always able to say why this person or this society or this situation doesn't have it together. Well, if they would have just done this. Well, if he or she would have just not chosen that. Or if this person would have lived more like me. The biggest lie we say. If they would have just been more like me, then things would be better for them. While we ourselves are in worse spiritual situations than they are. It's not for naught that the descriptor of a hard heart, of a rocky, stony, dead, calcified heart, is not only famously applied to Pharaoh throughout Scripture, but also God's own chosen people. See, this is a condemnation of Pharaoh that his heart is hard. It's about the worst thing that God can say that you're dead spiritually on the inside. He points the finger at Pharaoh because that's true. And with the same breath, he then accuses Israel of the same disbelief and sin. Israel is not somehow better than Pharaoh. They just don't happen to have the economic or, 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 or political upper hand in the moment. But let the, the scrolls of the Old Testament unfurl farther when Solomon and David are reigning. Then we see when they're in power, they're still as just sinful and disbelieving as they were when they were slaves in Egypt and had nothing. The sin of disbelief The foolishness of Adam and Eve to think to ourselves, yes, well, I know God says this, but my way will be better than God's because I know what I need. I know what I want better than He does. These are prevalent in the lives of all of God's people. Even His church here today. The hardening of Pharaoh's heart, either by himself in pride or by God in judgment, we read both in these passages, ought to make us fear our own predisposition for having a rocky heart. Not to look out at Pharaoh and others and say, oh, look how hard-hearted they are, but to realize that our own hearts might be harder might not be made of spiritual life as we think they are. While chapters 7 and 11, namely the the beginning of these blows and plagues and the end, tell us that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. God very explicitly says, I will do this. I will harden his heart. All throughout the story, we read seven times Pharaoh hardens his own heart. It's Pharaoh who does this. In other words, Pharaoh is intentionally choosing over and over and over again to disbelieve the signs that his eyes 
see. He chooses His own damnation. And yet, this should give us both great pause and great hope. This paradox. God who says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And Pharaoh who says, I will harden my own heart. First, it should give us great pause because this overarching plague narrative shows us, as Christopher Wright notes, that when God acts in judgment against sinful and rebellious and oppressive people, nobody can legitimately complain of injustice on the grounds of God's sovereign governance of history. In other words, nobody can complain that when God comes Uh, when the man comes around, as Johnny Cash says, to make all things right, nobody can say, well, God made me do it. It's not my fault. God made me do it. That will always be false on the lips of any sinner as it would have been on the lips of Pharaoh. The narrative works very hard to make it repeatedly clear, Wright tells us, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that Pharaoh was no puppet on a string. His own willful sin was his undoing. The Scripture shows us this is what he wanted. That should give us great pause, Christian. Don't let your heart, your own sin, become so rocky that it becomes your undoing. However, This should also give us great hope. Because no matter what lies inside the heart of wicked kings or maniacal dictators or the idol factory of our own heart, as Calvin loved to call it, when God acts to defeat evil, right rights, oppression and injustice, God will not be defeated by any human or satanic opposition. And the cross of Jesus Christ is proof that God will wield the forces of death itself against the curse of sin on human beings. God will subvert the powers of this world by using them against themselves. That should give us great hope that while on the one hand, We choose the evil we do in this world. We can take great hope that nothing can thwart, nothing can thwart the purposes of God who loves wayward sinners. Nevertheless, heed the words of both the prophets and then later re-articulated in the New Testament by the apostles. They say this to God's people, do not harden your hearts like God's people did in the wilderness. Do not harden your hearts, Maranatha, to what God is doing in your life in this world today. Don't do it. The potential is there for all of us to do it. But be warned. Back to our story. We read in in verse 10, So Moses and Aaron went into Pharaoh and did just as the Lord had commanded. Aaron threw his staff before Pharaoh and his officials, and it became a serpent. Now something really amazing and interesting is happening here. 
You remember back in chapter 4, the Lord previewed some of the signs He would do if Pharaoh wouldn't believe, if Israel wouldn't believe. And the first one is He said, throw your staff, your shepherding crook on the, on the ground, Moses, and watch it become a snake. And Moses did, and it became a snake. The Bible says he picked up his garment and ran away from it. Old 80-year-old man running away from a snake. And so now is the time for that sign to be used. But the word used in chapter 4 is a common word for snake. The word used here, the Hebrew word used here, means serpent. But it has an entirely different and wildly different connotation to it. So, for instance, let me give you an illustration of this. If I were to ask you, just say, hey, tell me the difference between a serpent and a sea serpent. They both have the same words in them. Wildly different meanings. If I were to ask you about a serpent, you'd say, well, the former, yeah, that's a, maybe a small little frightening land animal that slithers around on the ground. Maybe it's poisonous. Maybe it's not. Would rather not find out the hard way. That's a serpent. But if I were to ask you, what's a sea serpent? You would have to go to the mythological part of your brain to talk about this uh, colossal and terrifying beast that lives in the chaos waters of the sea and is not unlike a dragon. And folks, that is the difference of word happening in this passage. See, God says, Moses, throw down your rod and I'll make a snake come out of it. And Aaron goes to throw down his rod and he finds a sea monster emerges from his snake or from his staff. Aaron's serpent has become something greater and more terrifying than before. The, the, the scriptures are clear. And the words they use, that this is not like it was before. And if you want to understand a bit more about how God thinks of these kind of serpents, what He thinks of these kind of beasts, just go to Job 41. When Job was presuming to understand the mind of God. And God says, Gear up, boy. I'm about to show you who I really am. Have you considered my little pet, the Leviathan? Same idea. Let me, let me just read from Job 41 so we can get an idea of the power of God on display in Pharaoh's court by comparison. This is what God says to a, an arrogant Job. Can you pull in Leviathan with a hook? Can you tie his tongue down with a rope? Can you play with him like a bird or put him on a leash for your girls? Lay a hand on him. Go ahead, do it. Lay a hand on Leviathan and you'll remember that battle and never repeat it. Any hopes of capturing him prove false. Does a person not collapse at the very sight of him? No one is ferocious enough to rouse Leviathan and who can then stand against me? The implication is that God walks even the, the most terrifying aspects of His creation. The Leviathans, the behemoths, He keeps them on leashes like their little toy poodles. That's how powerful this God is. 
What is this serpent like? Who can strip out his outer covering? Who can penetrate his double layer of armor? Who can open his jaws surrounded by those terrifying teeth? His pride is in his row of scales that are closely sealed together. His snorting flashes with light while his eyes are like the rays of dawn. Flaming torches shoot from his mouth. Fiery sparks fly out. His heart is hard like a rock, as hard as a lower millstone. When Leviathan rises, the mighty are terrified. They retreat before his thrashing. The sword that reaches him will have no effect, nor will a spear, dart, or arrow. He has not equal on earth. A creature devoid of fear, he surveys everything that is haughty, and he is king over all the proud beasts. That's the word that the Lord is using when Aaron throws down that staff. Something similar to that emerges in Pharaoh's courtroom. God Almighty, Maker of heaven and earth, has unleashed a sea monster in Pharaoh's throne room. And He has upended the natural order in such a way that there should be no doubt who He is and what He can do. And yet, and yet, Pharaoh is unfazed by the Loch Ness monster roaring in his palace. That's how calcified sin has made his heart. And you kid yourself if you think that's not possible to happen to you too. That's how far off you can be from the Lord. That no miracle that He could drop in our lap, even if it were a dinosaur standing in our midst, would get us to believe He is who He says and He's going to do what He's going to do. Pharaoh simply scoffs and he has his own priests and magicians summon their demonic lords to use their occult practices to change their staffs into puny little river moccasins. But that mighty beast, that sea beast, devours their staffs. No problem. And yet we read in verse 13, however, Pharaoh's heart was hard. He did not listen to them as the Lord had said. This is the dire stakes of our world, folks. It doesn't matter how terrible things get. This is what we are left to ourselves. I've heard so many people say, well, if God would just speak from the heavens, or if He would just show up in our midst, then I'd believe He's real. He's done that time and again throughout history and people always forget not even 15 seconds later what they've seen. This is the state of our world. You can understand how things are unfolding in this world and the folding un- in, the, in the war rooms of this world and the boardrooms of this world because this is the same rocky heart that is in Pharaoh that sends so many people. And even in people in the church 
scandalous thing. But folks, the worst thing about a rocky heart is that no blood, that is no life, can flow through it. Instead, what so often happens with a rocky heart is that the blood of others is typically shed because of it. And because Pharaoh has hardened his own heart, just like the Lord knew, and just like the Lord said, and just like the Lord deemed, he then tells Moses in verse 15 to show him the first of ten terrible signs that God has stored up for Pharaoh. When Pharaoh goes to take his morning bath in the Nile, the source, the Nile, the source of Egypt's economy and therefore their wealth and therefore their power, when he goes down to wash himself, this is what the Lord says. Tell Pharaoh this, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has sent me to tell you, let my people go so that they may worship me in the wilderness. But so far you have not listened. So this is what the Lord says. Here is how you will know that I am the Lord. Watch! I'm about to strike the water in the Nile with a staff in my hand and it will turn to blood. The fish in the Nile will die, the river will stink, and the Egyptians will be unable to drink water from it. Watch! God says. Since you have a problem with listening, watch instead. I'm about to strike your Nile, your precious source of life and leisure, when Aaron raises his staff and it will turn all of Egypt's life-giving nourishment into stinking, festering, rotting blood. The blood that you've shed and your own people will no longer be able to profit from. And so Moses and Aaron, finally in the story, finally get wise. We read, they do and say exactly as the Lord has commanded them. And in the sight of Pharaoh, his generals, his diplomats, his economists, his governors, his bishops, his professors, every important person in his administration, the Lord turns this cool, clear water into red-hot iron, blood and gore everywhere. And creation begins to die because of it. Because of Pharaoh's sin, the fish float to the surface dead. Because of Pharaoh's disbelief, the reeds of the the Nile are caked in coagulants. Because of Pharaoh's sin, the people vomit at a stench a thousand times more foul than the city of Atlanta's landfill. Hard to believe. But do you think that this horror movie that's come to life has caused Pharaoh to reflect or to repent? No, no, and seven more times, no. Instead, he has summoned his own demonic magi to use their occult. Interestingly, not to reverse what the Lord has done. They don't have the power to do that. His collapsing of creation is not something that they can undo. They simply replicate it. They find some pure water somewhere and, and, and they turn it also into blood. It's so foolish. Imagine the Lord has just launched a nuclear strike against the great pyramids of Giza and left a crater where they used to be. And Pharaoh says, my guys can do that. And they light a firecracker 
and throw it into the crater left behind. That's what Pharaoh thinks his power, how his power is impressive. He's so foolish, he can't see that there is nothing he can possibly do to rival this God who has taken umbrage with him. And tragically, we read, so Pharaoh's heart was hard. He would not listen to them. As the Lord had said, Pharaoh turned around, went into his palace, and didn't take it to heart. And he leaves his people out there desperately digging for water. They've become the slaves now, looking for water. And seven days goes by for him to think about what he's done. And unfortunately, as we'll see next week, because of his rocky heart, all of this bloody river will not change his mind. And there's no great danger, no greater danger in life, I should say, no greater threat in creation than to let our own hearts become fossilized by sin and disbelief. Because a rocky heart will lead to rivers of blood. And we're all too clearly seeing that in our world today. And while we see natural disasters and supernatural blows strike this world time and time again with no reprieve in sight, the Lord is telling us, even now, Christian, to watch, to listen, because this is how we will know that He is the Lord. And how do we know that He is the Lord? Because the greatest sign of all, the deadliest blow ever struck, the most precious blood ever that ever flowed through a human heart has already been spilled by Jesus Christ. God in the flesh, who came to earth to live and suffer and die on a cross for all of our sin and disbelief, equally as offensive as Pharaoh's. And yet by the death of the God-man and His resurrection, He has summoned us, not to judgment, but to a new way of life. And so now, look, church, listen, and believe on Him so that no matter what happens in this life, no matter what the coming weeks or months or years have for us, that You will in Jesus be saved. Let's pray. Lord, we believe. Help our unbelief. Place in us hearts not of stone, but of flesh, so that we may repent of all sin and turn to receive the compassion, forgiveness, and love of God that leads to eternal life in Christ. For it's by His shed blood and in His precious name that we dare pray in hope. Amen.